All right, so we are live. Let me uh, bring up our chat window in case somebody's uh, jumping on from Florida, Myrtle Beach, or uh, we had a guy listening in Germany for a while, which is weird because the time zone is six hours. I yeah, had. he had to be like on, on some kind of a Caffeine rush? Yeah. No, Early I was morning. thinking more about yeah, he worked third shift or something like that and, and just didn't sleep or something. Okay, so um, welcome, Mike. I am so glad to be back doing this again because I'm convinced the Lord will not come back until we finish <laughs> this study. Because I'm going to get through the entire apostolic scriptures, and we get just a few more to go here. Um, for those of you uh, listening online, and for Mike, we are uh, walking through the apostolic scriptures uh, chronologically, uh, looking for as Gentiles. How, how are we supposed to live? Is the uh, is the Torah our guide for life and practice, or is there uh, Didache that we should be reading, or is uh, is there uh, a Talmud that we should be doing. What's happening? I think the Martins have arrived. Well, how lovely that is. Let me grab some beer. I got you. Comfortable? Hey. I was hopeful that I would see. Good evening. Do we have the eldest or no? Oh, yes. All right. Fine. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Oh, Scott Martin. Mike? Yes, good to meet you. He's not pregnant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that we know of. Well, good! Well, oh, there it is. I've known Scott. Well, let's just say I've known Scott longer than any man in this room. Let's leave it at that. That would be true. Yeah. Good to see you. Lovely. Well, thank you. Yes. Yes. Glad you got it. Where's your, uh, where's your brother? You're reading that? Uh, how you doing, Ben? Uh, oh, well, I always turn it. No, that would be, that would be pretty tricky. Mine has got some good outs. No, no, I, I usually turn it. Look at what size I've got mine set Really? Sure. I think I got it from my loan. Is it good? I think or deteriorating. All right, so everybody got a seat. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm not liking that. No, I'm not liking it. Come on. Over here by your yeah, dad. Yeah. Come on. Are you just squinting really yeah, hard? Well, that's been yeah. seven years. Okay. Well, that's more like it. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, sept, huit, neuf, dix, onze, douze, treize. Not bad. I have no idea what those numbers are, but yeah, yeah. it sounded big. Yeah, like <laughs> I would have never known. Did I get kind of fresh? Yeah, I took uh, several years of uh, French wine. <laughs> several years. And I, can actually, uh, I can actually tell you that uh, if you ask where Sylvia is, I can tell you she's in the swimming pool. Wait, wait, wait. I know you want to know how much that yellow scarf costs. I can tell you that too. Thank you, Ralph. Actually, can we think of it? I can only ask you how much the yellow scarf is. I can't tell you how much it costs. Yeah. 
we ever learned some of the good stuff like where is the men's room mm. can I pay for this in American currency before I eat none of those things so okay speaking of American currency here we are in Colossians and uh, my Bible says there's only like an inch left and some of that's not even chronological so um, I'm excited, as I was uh, telling you guys right before you got here. I'm excited that uh, we are we are back in, and uh, we're going to finish this out. I'm excited about that. So Colossians, I was hoping to do the entire book, but uh, then I remember how Joshua just kind of slowed us down in our last book study. It was the details. <laughs> it was a spectacular, actually, couple of uh, lessons. Um, but I, I guess, in some sort of uh, little call, I thought I could uh, knock out the entire book. What was it? Ephesians or something? You wanted to do the last five chapters of Romans in like one night. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you know, my, it's my job to make sure that you have class material for 2019. That's that's, that's the goal. it. We're going to keep these classes until 2019. That's right. Okay. So lesson 43, um, doing the book of Colossians. Again, um, by way of uh, quick review, Paul has uh, come back after his last journey and was confronted in a gentle way by the uh, Jerusalem Council that we last heard of in Acts chapter 15. And uh, James, the head of the Jerusalem uh, community there, said, uh, you know, Paul, uh, there's there's some folks saying that uh, you're doing two things, teaching uh, against the Torah, and was it against circumcision, I think? Something it's like it's that. thought it was against the, the law, the, the people, and the place. The people and the place. Oh, again, the temple, that's right. Uh, you're teaching that uh, they don't need to keep the Torah, and uh, and that uh, the temple is is not uh, necessary, or something like that. And uh, their answer to that was to prove that that was wrong, prove the naysayers wrong, by having him finish his vow in the temple, which uh, includes cutting his hair and, and doing several uh, animal sacrifices. And not only that, but to pay for three or four other Gentiles uh, that were going through the same thing, finishing vows. So uh, he went to the temple. Actually, I'm, I'm not sure that they were Gentiles. Mm. Uh, it doesn't no, specify. No, no. It does say. Almost and certainly not. And their names were not, right? Um, Even if it was, the, it was James's idea. Yeah. They were going to go on a limb and assume right, they were right. They were not Gentiles. What it was, was he went to the temple paid for his uh, uh, his deal and for theirs and then he was seen in the temple and because he had brought a Gentile or two to the uh, he was just seen in, with, in, the, in Jerusalem seen in Jerusalem with, they, assumed, they assumed he had brought Gentiles into the temple which would be completely inappropriate and a riot ensues well inappropriate for them right uh, they pulled him aside uh, that being the Roman soldiers um, and eventually he appeals to Caesar and is sent to Rome. 
Now, while in Rome, we have what are called the prison epistles, and we pick up with the letter he wrote uh, to the assembly in Colossae. And uh, if you recall the map that we put on the wall, Ephesus is on the uh, corner of Asia over here, uh, in the water. And right off of the coast of Ephesus is uh, the island of Patmos. And we'll be uh, visiting there uh, towards the end of our deal with, uh, with John. But if you're on Patmos and looking at uh, Ephesus, um, just a little in, in from Ephesus, there's a ring of seven assemblies. Uh, and these are the ones to whom John wrote. Uh, the last one, the bottom right-hand corner, is Laodicea. And about, uh, it looks like about a mile and a half on my map. Along the water, you get to Colossae. And uh, that's who he's writing. We'll see in chapter 4, if, uh, if we get there before the Lord returns, um, that uh, he recommends that when you're done reading this uh, letter, that you get the one that the Laodice I wrote to Laodicea and kind of swap letters. Have them read your letter and you read their letter. Do you yeah. have that for us? Too? We don't have that letter. Um, I left it with Gregory. <laughs> Seems to be gone now. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, the swap didn't work out. Yeah, so well. it didn't work out too well. So, uh, extant, as they say in the yes. industry. So, but I, I had never thought about this until reading this book this week. That now you're um, going to have to speak much louder. To, oh, oh, I'm, to I'm get the folks away. that are in yeah. Gastonia to be able to hear you. Yeah, I think since we've been only the first, second time in my life, I've been told to talk louder. <laughs> so, the Book of Colossians. What I had never thought about before I read this book this time was that. It's a huge blessing that Paul went to prison. Like, I would have never thought about that being a positive thing. It's so sad. He has a chance to go to Rome, like, to go, and then we go to Spain. And yep, it's like, yep. we could have converted the whole world to Paul. And instead, Paul has, you know, a handful of years with nothing to do but write letters, which happen to be, like, basically half of the apostolic scriptures. That's so, exactly right. Um, it's really, like, you talk about a silver lining there. Like, God really used this challenge in Paul's life. Well, I'm sure he was confused as to why he was going through that. But sure. it's like, okay, it's God's will. Sure. Um, and yet, this is where some of the most significant treatises on you want to, uh, theology for our faith come from. That's exactly right. And uh, as, as I brought out in the um, study guide here, um, we learn an immense amount about the Master himself in some of Paul's writings. And... Uh, I hope we're going to spend some time in that one uh, tonight. So let's uh, let's open to uh, Colossians chapter one, and as it be, has become our habit, uh, let's just read through it real quick, just to remind ourselves. And for the noobs, did you read it this week? You did. Did you read it yesterday? No. All right. So we've got a good refresher for Caleb, and certainly for me. So, um, who, who would like to uh, start us out? Sure, I've got it. Thank you, Gregory. <laughs> yeah, how many are we looking at here? You know, read until you get to the break in the paragraph, and, and everybody looks anxious wanting you to stop reading. I'll go to eight. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Messiah at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God for 
God the Father of our Messiah Yeshua. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Messiah Yeshua and of the life that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, for our Epaphras. Epaphras. our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Messiah on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Nicely done. Thank you, sir. So, for those uh, listening online uh, that may believe that uh, if you, uh, if, if and when you die, um, you'll go to heaven. Um, the sad news is that that's simply not the case, right? You have to go through judgment first. Actually, um, even after judgment, the odds of you ending up in heaven are, well, zero. Because heaven is the uh, abode of God, not of man. And uh, the world come is on this planet. But what is in heaven? Verse 5, is it the believer? The hope, which There's is the hope Messiah. laid up, which is Messiah. There it is. So, um, it's a good point there. Epaphras. This guy spent a lot of time sharing the gospel. We're going to read about him in several other of these letters. Um, but a serious uh, evangelist for the word of God. All right. Other comments, sir? We'll go on to the next. Well, uh, just as you, as you read through, it's so interesting to see how frequent, especially in this book, Paul uses either the term Messiah or Yeshua or the Son. Like, it feels like it's all over the place. Like, very, very repetitive with the point he's trying to make, the, the, to whom he's making these points, right? And I just... I. I find that so fascinating because, I don't know, in like other letters that you see, uh, either in, in Judaism, you know, like some of the famous letters that are observed, and even in some of the, the similar sects like Chabad and stuff, there's just not as much emphasis on like a person like that, you know, like, uh, it's certainly not, in, in most cases, it's certainly not a Messiah, so it's just, it's so unique that Paul, I feel like, does this, you know, that he is reiterating over and over again that this is the whole point. And yeah. clearly, I think we can yeah. derive from that. This was something that those in Colossia needed to hear. Yeah. You know? That, that, that it needed to be reiterated that much. That, it, that, it that this is the point. This connection. Yeah. Messiah is Yeshua. Yeah. Yeshua is the Messiah. Yeah. Where if you're reading stuff from Chabad, they talk about when Messiah comes, such and such, this and whatnot. Sure. But even generic and sort of even even like ones that write, you know and have like a Rebbe, you know they're not like throwing the Rebbe all over the place in their letters and stuff. You know what I mean? Like true. it's just it's a it's a unique style, but I think it, it lends itself to sort of what why Paul is doing that. I think is is sort of the point of the book. I like it. Emphasizing yeah. it. I don't Pick see something good. up from David Stern where. He was saying how it paralleled Adam alone and how God was the creator of the universe. And now he's trying to say here how Yeshua was absolutely divinity in there. And 
kind of show the parallels between the Dalam and this actual scripture. Yeah. Trying to uh, put the two together and saying yeah. this is very similar. Yeah, this is a good parallel. So since you since you brought that up, why don't you go ahead and uh, pick this up in nine and therefore to fourteen. From the day we heard it, we have not stopped praying for you, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all the wisdom and understanding which the Spirit gives so that you may live lives worthy of the Lord and entirely pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. We pray that you will be continually strengthened with all the power that comes from his glorious might, so that you will be able to preserve and be patient in any situation, joyfully giving thanks to the Father for having made you fit to share in the inheritance of his people in light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Nice. Continue. Now let's, uh, that's interesting. Did you go to 14? Um, no, at 14. He stopped at 13. He had 14. It is through his son that we have redemption. That is, our sins have been forgiven. That's a great place to stop. Okay, so. Um, in your study guide, I, I picked up on that word uh, for sufficient, or in uh, in your English Standard Version, probably uh, uh, qualified you, right? Hikanao, to qualify you, or to, um, I can recall over the, I think, I think it was this year. Um, and all my sons got together and we uh, we did one of those uh, horrible races where, where you it's a Spartan race so you, you, you put yourself in, in harm's way and brutalize your own body and, no, you're, not. and yes. you're not being paid I don't, you actually paid for the privilege of doing You know, I'm carrying, I'm carrying a bucket of rocks. I'm carrying a bucket, uphill, carrying a bucket of rocks. You know, I and... I loved every minute. <laughs> 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 That's bonding. Where else would I rather be right now? Who has qualified you to run this race? Oh, man. Yeah. You had to show your passport, your ID, all that kind of stuff just to get in there. What about the rocks? Yeah, the rocks were... <laughs> Holy cow. Sorry, that was a line from a funny TV show. Is that right? Andy Griffith's show. Yeah. What about the rocks? So it's kind of interesting at the end, towards the end, where you stop, you know, where it says, it's so expected that you would hear and transferred us to the kingdom of King Messiah. Like, you know, there's a king of the kingdom. But it, again, like, going back to, you know, he, he brings out his beloved son, you know, constantly tying in this relationship between Messiah and the mm -hmm. Father and the Father and Messiah and the Father gave you this but this is through Messiah and man it's so interesting mean, and to Joshua's point talking about writing this in prison perhaps that emphasized maybe you know just cutting through any of the uh, his hyper rational and, and uh, droshes and just go straight to the point you know really drive home this fact which is funny because I well, we're going to get into his description of Messiah next but as you read through it, it's not, um, this is not theology. I mean, this is not what it's a systemic theology. 
what you know if you if you crack open any of those big scary looking books in the seminary about the deity of Messiah, um, they will they will have a you know a, a, a Venn diagram slash flow chart slash graph showing how you know God the Father is X percent and Jesus the Son is X percent and the Holy Spirit and then you know people forget about the seven spirits of God and something else entirely and then we got like you know, an octrinity, I don't even know what to call that. But the point is that, like, there's this 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 desire to make the nature of God a science. Paul is completely mystical. There's no science here. As you read through this, you'll notice that there's nowhere in the entire text does, does Paul come out and say A equals B equals C. And, and there's none of that. And he seems fine with that. Because the reason, I think, is he's is that when you talk about the divinity of Messiah, which I think Paul is definitely going to, you are threading a very thin line between blasphemy on either side. That's right. And the only way that I think that he, we as human beings can even pretend to comprehend it is in the somewhat circular, somewhat self-contradictory, mystical approach to God. Because if you try to approach it with a, with kind of that logical Greek mindset, um, it does not fit into a box. But on a on a from a mystical Eastern perspective, it's totally fine, you know. So this doesn't make sense. That's okay. It's the A is true, B is also true. You can figure out how that works. It doesn't works. matter. That's exactly right. It gets kind of close here towards the end, though, with like the redemption and forgiveness of sins all come from his beloved son which is oh. which is unusual in Judaism to say oh, that you know so it's it is kind of a, a very bold statement for sure well, I mean I think in the, well we should just read the next passage yeah, yeah. So I'm, stuff I'm trying time. not to hit verse 15 and until I, I share with you <clears throat> my understanding that Paul is is writing theology in the venue of his life. Let's just, let's just happen. Let's just happen to Paul. Right? So he's, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's walking the walk. He's rushed, we've seen, to get back to Jerusalem in time for a festival so he can finish this vow. He's going to cut his hair. He's going to do the offerings. He's performed a Nazarite vow. This is big. This is cool. He's top shelf. He's, he's doing everything right. And he recognizes as he's traveled across the world and back several times now, that it's a bear not practicing his faith but witnessing for his master so this whole I was blinded you have no idea holy cow it's been really bad and they killed me they stoned me to death somehow or another I just got up walked back in town here they whipped me they 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 came to me. They did it. It's, it's been unpleasant. Shipwreck. Shipwreck. Yeah, the whole thing. But now, 
he gets back to what I believe is his beloved Jerusalem. He's doing all the right things. And what happens? He gets arrested by Romans. And I think, as we talked about the last time we got together, this is where Paul comes into his own. Paul realizes, I am knee-deep in dookie. And you know what? This has happened so many times now. Don't, don't dwell on the dookie comment. Oh, Just work past that. <laughs> this has happened so many times. This is the way it's going to be for me. And I'm okay with that. And I think that's why he kind of plays with the Roman centurion. He's about to be beaten. And as they're stretching him out, he just kind of looks up and casually says, are, are you allowed to, uh, to do this to a Roman citizen? In a James Bond style. Yeah, right? I mean, it's just money, Penny. This is not right. You know, he's just calm about it now. And I, and I think... He's been beat up, tortured, and thrown in jail and all that stuff long enough that he realizes that this is the way things are going to go. And I want you to read in that light. Hang on one sec. In that light, I want you to consider that this man has been transferred from one Roman cohort to another where he was no doubt kept in chains, in the bottom of a boat, where it's dark, and then gets transferred again, finally, to another Roman cohort that puts him in chains in a prison. In that light, he, the Lord our God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. I think he is living out the activities of his life and putting it into theological terms so that we can feel it, so that we can embrace it, so that you can smell it. And I think that's why these epistles are here. God could have given us a treatise on theology to teach us about his son. But we've now got this, I've been transferred from this one to this one. You know what? It just occurs to me that God transferred us from the darkness of not knowing him and not having a place in the world to come to the kingdom of his son where we will have a place in the world to come. He it's light itself. Do you, do you feel it? Do you get it? Do you see it? Do you see what I'm saying? Which is completely beautiful because that's exactly how he talks to us. Too. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So as you read through it, try and, try and, try and put everything you about Paul and his history now, since we're reading it chronologically, try and, try and undergird what he says with that. Instead of, as, as Joshua was saying, trying to get the, the whole theological thing to work. He's not trying to make theology work. He's trying to get our hearts to move and to understand the reality of salvation. Huh? Well, just capitalizing on the, that forgiveness of sins, um, 
Hebrew mindset at that time, did they conceptualize or have any idea that the Messiah himself would be able to have the authority to give sin? Or is this a completely new theology? We hear John says, you know, here comes the Lamb, um, you know, forgiveness of our sins. But every time Yeshua first said, your sins are given, they picked up stones to stone him. This concept of Messiah being able to have the authority to initiate pardon of sin. It's not a problem at all theologically, provided Messiah is God. Who has the authority to forgive sins but God? I understand. So my question is, is... God, God, and God alone. So, where where we hear some in the invisible representation of the church make these claims that Yeshua never claimed to be God, he never presented himself as divine. It, it could just couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, obviously you haven't read it then, right? Because to your point, every time, almost every time, he does a miracle that heals someone. He doesn't say, "Hey." You've been healed. Go play the lottery because you're doing good today. It's your sins have been forgiven. And then he starts playing with them. They get all upset. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven? We're taking the pallet and walk. So that you understand that the Messiah, the Son of Man, has the, the privilege, the ability, the reality to forgive sins. My question is, is this a new theology? Well, I think that when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, it might be, but it the concept of Messiah playing a, well, step back, that's the Messiah. The concept of a really, really, really good person playing an atoning role for the broader people is... Hold that thought. Not necessarily new. No. Right. Hold, hold, hold that thought, because you can't, you can't go there. Until we read the next paragraph. We've got this kind of ah! the next paragraph. <laughs> all right, Mr. Martin, would you be kind enough, sir, Indeed. with all the vim and gusto from 15, I think, to uh, 20? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And there you have it. So let's start with Genesis. If we read the Midrash and the works of the sages. In the beginning was the word. No, wait, the Midrash. But could you're not uh, you're not permitted to do deep study on the creation story as a uh, as a young Talmud. And the reason for that is because according to the Jewish sages, you might inadvertently blaspheme God as you talk about the Messiah. Huh. 
because everyone agrees it was God who created the heavens and the earth. And yet here we read that it was by him that all things were created. So we've got a, a parallel here between God, the creator, and the Messiah. It was the spirit of Messiah, the Midrash says, that hovered over the earth when it was void. So, And I think that don't they also attribute messianic qualities to the the wisdom character yeah. in uh, Proverbs, Proverbs. who is the tool is effectively that right. God uses I, to where, make the universe. Where were you? I was there I when was there. he you know, created the deeps. And just to point out, like, to back to the comment I made earlier about Paul and this passage being um, not Western, um, just think about it from, just from, put on your, your most logical hat for a second and listen to some of these phrases. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn. We call it a tautology, I think. Right? Okay. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Which means that he wasn't. Right. Wait, I'm confused. Um, he is before all things, and in him, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So, like, I mean, if you, theoretically, from a Western perspective, you should be doing exactly what I just started doing, just stuttering. Like, I'm just so confused. Because everything is contrast. And that's my point, is to say that, like, Paul threads the needle here so beautifully to say, you know, Messiah is divine, but let's focus more on... Because when you talk about God, you can't really talk about the, the person of God. Because if Judaism teaches, and I think they're correct, we can't really understand... God. God is, the, God is beyond our comprehension. He's and a couple of times that, that Judaism um, kind of flirts even a little bit with that, you're still left going, whoa, like how does that even work? So what Judaism does do, and I think that the, um, if you read the Song of Glory in the, uh, the Musa, um, they highlight the fact that how we know God, we know him by what he does. We define him by his actions. Name after name after name of God is given to God because of his actions, because of something he did. So what does Paul do in this? He, he has limited definition, like the image, but even that's almost more like a concrete item. It's not so much, he's not giving his character traits. Instead, he's running off one thing after the Messiah does. By him all things consist. By him all things were created. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I mean, it's almost like you can almost, like he's creating word pictures rather than theological lines. And I think that's important because I think that when you talk about risking, you run the risk of blaspheming in Genesis, I think we run the risk of blaspheming when we try to put God into this theological box and, oh, well, we have we have to make sure we have the right number of persons. You know, oh, wait, you, did, you said person, you should have said it's a triunity, not a trinity. And it's like, oh my goodness, back up. None of these words are in the Bible. This is the closest we get, really, in all of Scripture to say as clearly as possible, Messiah is God. I, I, we should be okay with that. I, I'm, I am pretty okay with that. Um, I like the icon <coughs> deal. Um, if I make a shortcut in Windows uh, to a program, uh, for example, Microsoft Excel, 
and I put that shortcut on your desktop or on your taskbar so that you can easily launch it. There is absolutely no difference in launching Excel from the actual executable or from the icon because they are the same. And it's, it's 2,000 years before computers. I mean, it's so beautiful. But it truly is, I think, what he's talking about. If you see one, you've seen the other. They are effectively the same. Are they unique? Yes, they are. Are they the same? Absolutely. And like you were saying, these things just don't mentally make sense. But you know what? I've never had to teach anyone. I've been doing this for 18 years. I've never had to teach anyone why the icon here on the desktop is different than Excel, the Excel executable itself. I never have to go through that. Other than to say, if you delete this icon, it's okay. Because it's still there. And I think that when you look at this passage, to me, one of the things that reminds is the image of the invisible God. First off, I just want to throw out there to all those uh, Jewish missionaries, anti-missionaries, who um, tend to assail Christianity and, and the apostolic scriptures over their, you know, personification of God through Yeshua. Um, this is the only place in the entire Bible, it's not included, Old Testament included, that says that God is invisible. The only place. It's Paul. And ironically enough, he's saying it in the context of Messiah being the image of the invisible God. Yeah. Um, but I think I can't help but think about so in the Song of Glory I come back to one again because they they Jewish Jewish approach to that is to say it's all allegorical but it, it still leaves them with a little bit of a conundrum because throughout Scripture over and over and over again we're getting these these weird physical manifestations of God and they're not all human I mean you have the the fire and the and the bush that burns up well so what is that you know is it an angel it, it, it talks like God first well, person even in the beginning. Adam and Chava walked Walking with, with God, God in the cool of the day in the garden. What it's does that mean? deliberate. Well, then you've got, you know, Moses wants to see God's back. You have the hand that writes in Daniel. You've got, in the multiple times we have visions, quote-unquote, of God. It says that the, 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 there was a, a pavement below his feet. There's no other definition or description. Um, then the Ezekiel. Seven, the 70 elders... Eight right, eight in front of him. him. Right, yeah. So they, you've got the, uh, the the Ezekiel imagery is sort of this kind of humanoid image, but very confusing color scheme. Um, you've got the, uh, the the older ancient days figure in right, Daniel. Daniel. Then there's the younger character who shows up to meet the ancient days character, which is also confusing. The point that I'm trying to get is, and then and then just oh, back up just before you think that well, that's just because you know the Old Testament they didn't know what they were talking about. They hadn't met Jesus yet. The New Testament throws a complete monkey wrench in the whole thing because they have Yeshua showing up with a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns kind of his head. It's like... Before that. Whoa! He shows up as a baby. Well, yeah, that's confusing too. But my, yeah, that's confusing. But my point, though, is to say that, like, before we try to, like, break it down into an easy, bite-sized um, textbook definition, Webster's de definition, where it's like, God equals Jesus because Jesus is the body of God. You know, like, we have a body. You know, it's like, no, no. God is God. He can be whatever he wants to be. The fact that Messiah happens to be God is 
you know, is true. How that all works together is difficult to understand. That's why I, I so appreciate the way that Paul phrases it, almost intentionally writing it in a way to say, you can't quite understand this, so don't even worry about that. The point, the point is what does Messiah do for you? What does Messiah do for the world? It doesn't matter how he's God, it's that he is God, and because he's God, he's able to accomplish all of this. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So, <clears throat> this is not new to Judaism, um, even in, in what we talked about, but even further, the tzaddik represents for us an explanation of what the mitzvot are all about. What, what are the commandments for? What do they do? Please no, it's God. Near. What's that? Please, please God. Please God. Draw us near. Draw us near. Show us what sin is. Show us what sin is. One word. Sanctification. Starts with fun, ends with action. Connect us to God. Connect. Connect. It's a connection to God. I'm saying repentance. That's that's what the Orthodox rabbi who taught our class a couple of years ago turned out. That the commandments, the mitzvot, are connections to God. We are connected to him when we keep these commandments. So the tzaddik, who is fully keeping the commandments, and over the years, the past 2,000 years, I've got, uh, I think, the Baba Sali's um, biography uh, up there. You, you see miracles just like you read about in the Apostolic Scriptures. You, you, you hear of, and there are reported, miracles just like we read in the, in the Tanakh. <clears throat> because these men are so closely connected with God. Here, we read about a tzaddik whose connection to God was unmuted. And because of that, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And I'm not here to argue with you. Was he God? Was he a man who God fully dwelled in and you know, so he was like 97% God or 99.9% pure or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm, that's not the purpose of this class. We can go through a year doing that kind of stuff. That's a waste of time. Paul's point here is, whether you're looking at it from a Jewish perspective of connection through the commandments and an absolutely righteous man, and there have been many in this one, The Father was well pleased. In this one, he chose to dwell, dwell fully. In this one, he released himself. I do think, though, that in this passage, much like you're going to get in the book of Hebrews when you finally get to Hebrews, <clears throat> um, Paul's point, I think, is somewhat less about divinity. Uh, it's partly because it has kind of alludes to it but doesn't come out and say it it's more about um, about the, this uh, categorical importance of Yeshua so you talked about many Zadikim whatever 
yes, there's lots. There's even in Judaism, much like what Messiah does here in earlier in the Gospels, has this idea that you kind of like pray in the name of so and so because they're closer to God. Therefore, like you, it's exactly. like I'm kind of it's kind of like if I were to say, you know, um, you know, I got Mr. Martin is is you know a friend of mine, so you should maybe do a favor for me because you and he are good friends. You know that kind of deal. Um, it's sort of that concept. But but Paul, I feel like, is wanting to escalate things. He's he's think about Paul's reason for this passage. This passage on Messiah is in between verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is not interested in a theological treatise. He's only interested in one thing, and that is to argue that Messiah Yeshua is the way that we make a connection to God. That's what he's been doing in all of his other letters. He's been doing in all of his messages, Jew and Gentile together, through Messiah, because he's it. The only way to prove that, the way to best prove that, is to say, Messiah is the best, the greatest, the most, the most preeminent of all of them, and that's why he alone is able to do this. But that is not unique in any way. After this right, after this right, Orthodox Judaism used this same tenet. This is your Rebbe. He is far closer to God than you. In fact, he's, he, he's so connected to God. Look, look at the miracles. Look at the miracles that he does on behalf of God. He is totally humble. He's amazing. You need to recognize this Rebbe as your means of connecting to God. This is a standard and regular thing in Judaism. After this writing. It's not that they were copying Paul. It's that this was the norm. This is what was beginning in that corner of the, sorry, in that corner of the timeline. We'll go through that with you some other time. Mm -hmm. That's what was going on. That's what they were teaching. It just haven't been written down yet. Or it was. We don't have any of it. But since then, that's the norm. That's how you draw near to God. You draw near to the tzaddik, to your Rebbe, and through his righteousness, through his relationship with God, you have a closer relationship with God. This is not new fare. All he's doing is popping it over the top. Because you've got some things that only God can do. Which he's implying means that our Rebbe is as close as you can get. And this is where I'd like to read Donald Long just uh, shows the parallel. Not sing it? I'm not. I'm going to read it in English. Okay, good. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, Master of the Universe, who reigned before any form was created, at the time when His will brought all into being, that as King was His name proclaimed. After all has ceased to be, He. The awesome one will reign alone. It is he who was, he who is, and he who shall remain in splendor. He is one. There is no second to compare to him, to declare as his equal, without beginning, without conclusion. His is the power and dominion. He is my God, my living redeemer, rock of my pain and time of distress. He is my banner, a refuge for me, the portions in my cup on the day I call. Into his hand I shall entrust my spirit when I go to sleep. 
and I shall awaken. With my spirit shall my body remain. Adonai with me, I shall not fear. I thought that was just beautiful. It's a lot of similarity. Yeah. It's great. And I think it, I was actually talking to my wife reading through this book that you mentioned that some of the stuff is not entirely foreign to Judaism. Maybe categorically it might be, but, but the concept it's not. Um, or rather, categorically it isn't new, but maybe the level it is. Um, but it's funny because it feels a little bit like Paul is about 1,700 years ahead of the time because he sounds so... Chabadnik, I feel like, in these passages, Hasidic, he's so mystical, he's so ethereal, but then when he gets practical, his practice is so, like, it's all kind of about, like, people, the people, actions, wanting to do the right thing, he's talking about putting away anger and malice, and it's like, go back and read the scriptures, with the exception of the book of Proverbs, almost all of the, like, the commandment level discussions in the scriptures are these very concrete rules, A, B, and C, do A, B, and C, do A, B, and C. And, and Paul has kind of got this Musar ethics, you know, it's a little more, not as well defined, but it's very important if you want to maintain good interpersonal relationships. This is all very similar to like kind of a much more Hasidic, I think, Hasidic type feel. And, and his mysticism is similar as well. And the, if you go into like Zohar and all the other types of Jewish mysticism, um, it, it gets like so close to like almost hinting that Messiah is divine, that, like, you almost have to have, like, whoa, 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 it's not really what we, you know, other people have to come back and say, that's not really what they mean to say. You know, like, there's, like, there's, like, some, uh, especially if you start getting into um, some of the stuff about some of the angelic characters and things along oh, yeah. those lines, yeah. it starts to really play with it. So my point is to say that it, um, it's, like, Paul is not so very different from Judaism, but ironically enough, he's actually, I feel like, almost more in line with Judaism today than necessarily than then. I don't. I, I agree with you, but I, I would I would argue that Paul was right in there with the rest of the back then. We don't have a lot of other writings That's true. with which to put it with. Mm. Um, but this is thoroughly Jewish. So if you're feeling particularly Gentile, deal with it. Okay. Well, one one of the so, things behind that, me there comes a voice. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was, I was agreeing with that too, thinking that same thing. But then, from all of my time spent in the church, there is that word that pops up that is so predominantly Christian and so not Jewish at all, like barely ever mentioned, and it's the word the cross. You know how he references that here. And I think it was kind of cool. Joshua pointed out that that bookend, you know, where he talks about in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins in verse 14, and then jumps down to verse 20 by making peace by the blood of his cross. So I was just kind of doing a quick little word search on that. And it's true that Paul references specifically the cross several different times and almost uses it in some cases as the analogy, almost synonymous with the gospel, you know. And so it, that's just kind of interesting thing that I, I guess I haven't really thought very much about, you know, as we've been looking at these through... A Jewish lens and we've been looking at them as Gentiles looking for like those those things that are applicable to us uh, the ways that there's this unity between both Jew and Gentile this does kind of stand out you know that's just not a, a word that is mentioned or referenced in in Jewish writings it's an I think it's kind of an odd thing to be 
pointing towards the method of execution as some kind of analogy for something instead of only referencing blood or only referencing resurrection or you know some of the things that it might symbolize but it's like he he, he points to that several different times um, probably more so than any other writer of the apostolic scriptures um, and so that, I, I don't know I, I'm, I'm kind of playing with this wondering like okay what the, one thing I was thinking of was from the point that Joshua was making about you know the various analogies and whatnot that describe God the, the allegories um, you know this could be one of them you know this is essentially this allegory of Messiah a way to understand Messiah that brings it home that reminds you of his sacrifice on your behalf that reminds you you know that it's supposed to bring with it a lot of that imagery so it becomes kind of like a shorthand. Um, but what's interesting about it, I guess my point of bringing this up, what's interesting about it, it's only shorthand for Christians. Only. I mean, I, I don't think any Jew would understand it if you said, like, well, absolutely, but if it wasn't for that cross, right? You know, they're, they're just, that is so foreign to them. See, I, 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 well, I hear what you're saying. You would be absolutely right in terms of a cross. But then I'm thinking, as you're, as you're talking, I'm just thinking in my own head, um, Dante did something similar to that with, like, uh, I feel like, you know, they talk about the, the fire. I mean, like, you know, Abraham goes in the fire, and somebody else gets thrown in the fire, and it's like, there's these, like, they use a similar imagery there, like, or the, you know, the altar with Isaac. I mean, I feel like you're right. They do, you, you, you're right. They don't talk about the cross that way, because there's all this Christian baggage. But, um, I mean, am I wrong? You, what no, do you think about I, that? I, I think he's, he's right. Cross is definitely a... Totally Christian term. I'm going to say Gentile... Sure. No, right. Christian, Gentile term, but let me just. I'm just thinking about the idea of like that the act of uh, 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 an act of death or danger, so, suffering, symbolic thing. Uh, yeah, they yeah. use that terminology. I'm all about time. to go through. So, um, the suffering of the righteous hmm. is yeah. is what Judaism is predicated upon. That it's it's God's justice. So the righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished, measure for measure. The righteous must suffer in this world to merit life in the world to come. The suffering of the wicked is due to their sin. The suffering of the righteous is not for their sins, since they're righteous. So the same holds true for death as well as suffering. Paul taught that the wages of sin is death. But the death of the righteous is not for themselves, but rather it brings atonement. It's a completely Jewish concept. Mm -hmm. um, in the uh, in the Mishnah, Moed Katan, why is the story of Miriam's, Miriam's death in the Talmud juxtaposed to the passage regarding the red heifer? Why, why are the two together? This is if you have absolutely nothing to do but change the air in your tires. Okay. To inform you that just as the red heifer provides atonement, so the deaths of the righteous provide Atonement. That's what it's to teach us. That's why these two are together. Rabbi Elazar said, Why is the death of Aaron juxtaposed to a mention of the priestly vestments? To inform you that just as the priestly vestments provide atonement, so do the deaths of the righteous provide atonement. Mm -hmm. Leviticus Rabbah 20, verse 12. Mm -hmm. As the day of atonement affects atonement, so the death of the righteous brings atonement. 2 Samuel 21, 14. They buried Saul and Jonathan, and after that, God was entreated for the land. My favorite, Berachot 62b, Rabbi Elazar said, 
The Holy One, blessed is he, said to the angel of death, Take for me a great one, a rob, among them, through whose death many sins may be expiated. The idea that a righteous man would die for the people is totally understandable. Here's the one you should memorize. I hope you're writing this down. Exodus Rabbah 35.4. This is in the Midrash. Moses sees into the future and knows that Israel will have neither a tabernacle nor a temple. It's all going to get destroyed. Then what? The divine reply was, I will take one of their righteous men and retain him as a pledge on their behalf in order that I may pardon all their sin. Exodus Rabbah 35. It's Exodus Rabbah 35.4. I have two copies of the Talmud in writing in the next room. If you want to see it in writing, Exodus Rabbah 35.4. There is no question what this man wrote to the Colossians was a Jewish concept. But as Joshua has pointed out, he raises the ante a little bit and talks about this righteous one as being so close to God that God actually indwelled him fully. The fullness of the Godhead dwelled in him. It was unbelievable. Like, you think he was God himself. But he never says it. Yeah, back to your, to your point, I think, you know, Joseph is pointing out that the concept here is a totally Jewish concept, right? Of the, yeah. the righteous suffering. Yeah, exactly. And he's expressing it in a Jewish manner by painting the picture by reference to the cross without coming out exactly and saying, you know, through the execution and death of, but he, he's using the Jewish methodology of painting the picture of what it's up. So I, I don't think there's a person alive at this time in the Roman Empire or Israel who wouldn't get what he's referring to. Because these are Hebrew people who are yeah. under right. Roman rule or the, people, the direct audience here are Roman citizens. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's just been expropriated by the church with the, and the, 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 the stake driven in the ground. Is, you know, this is the thing that we, we hang our uh, all of our hope on and, and, and the whole theology built around so that when we hear the cross today, we think of it as being a church concept. But I don't... It's a Roman concept. It's, it's a Roman concept that Paul used in We're a dead. Hebrew manner to convey a Hebrew concept. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And, and to, to your, like, your point about raising the bar, you know, like upping the ante a bit, that does make a lot of sense because even in the cases of, of Aaron and some of like the the traditions that's still not used in the same way Paul's using it. You know, you don't like greet one another being like, oh, well, if it wasn't for the death of Aaron, you know, I don't know what we would do with our sin. Like, you, just, you know what I mean? Like, so Paul like just steps it up so much with his continual references to Yeshua specifically. And, and I think it, it to your point, uh, it's, it's to emphasize the personal nature of his death on on behalf of everyone reading this mm -hmm. you know that it wasn't just this occurrence that happened and now we've got some ideas in our head about what this was like 
I feel like this drives it home. It gives you a per an image. It gives you a especially for the people around this time. It would have they would have felt something when they heard that. You know, it, it would have really stirred some emotions. And as as it should today, that was kind of my point too. Was yeah. you know almost bringing this back home to from a Jewish standpoint and and from a context instead of uh, how we would maybe understand it more in the church. Today. Well, if if you look at 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 the Jews of of, of that day. I've always wondered not why tens of thousands of Jews, devout Jews, that were that had, you know, made the pilgrimage, were there for the festival and all, why pardon me, tens of thousands of Jews came to know Messiah and believed that he was the Messiah. I can deal with that. What used to trouble me is why so many priests trusted that he was the Messiah. And I think it's because of this. What did they do to provide atonement for those people day in and day out? Mm -hmm. They killed animals. Mm -hmm. When they heard this righteous one was taken and is being held for you, I think they lost it. Okay, so that's it. Okay, I got it. I believe it. One other quick thing here in this passage. So, um, not only do I, um, and I think you all have done a great job pointing out the Jewish ties to false comments, but looking at this, and I think I may have heard this from someone else, so I'm not going to claim credit for it, but he even writes this passage in a Jewish format. So, um, the Jewish poetry system is basically you have parallels on each end, bookends, and they keep paralleling on both ends. So, like in. Um, they would have at line one number one is a the last line is a and then the second line is b and the second to last line is b and then c and then c and d and it's like a jewish poetic structure that's how they that's how most well not most but a lot of jewish poetry is done especially in the psalms and proverbs so in this particular passage if you start with verse 14 in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins that's a and at the end verse 20 through him to reconcile to himself all things whether in heaven, earth or in heaven. That's a similar concept, right? So you have A again. Well, then it says, he is the image of the invisible God. And the other one is, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then it says, the firstborn of all creation. And it says, the firstborn from the dead. And then it says, he is the beginning. And it says, for by him all things were created. And then you end up with, uh, it, he is before all things. He is the head of the body, the assembly. And in the middle... Ah, it's just hilarious. Not like Paul would do this. The middle in Jewish poetry is always the most important part of any one of these systems. This is chiastic. The middle, the chiastic poetry, thank mm -hmm. you. The middle is, in him all things hold together. So you have all these pieces being held together by connections from one end to the other, and the central of it all is, and in him all things hold together. I mean, it's just, it is a, there's almost like a, a beauty in the language, <coughs> the way that he does that. Amen. And so I guess... I think the point that we're trying to get at, I think, we, I think we've achieved pretty well, is to say that um, Paul's goal here is not to help you pass a quiz on what do Christians believe about God. Amen. His goal here is to make you feel overwhelmed at the greatness, uniqueness, and perfect uh, accomplishment of Messiah. That he's the only one that could do what he did, and that what he did, because of who he is, what he can do is greater than anyone else. Well, I, I think to your point, and that's excellent, Joshua, thank you. Um, 
he's making the argument in a paragraph about why he'd be your Rebbe. Right. This is what a Rebbe is all about. This is the guy you want to learn from. This is the guy who can do something for you that you can't do for yourself. This is the one who you want to draw near to. This is the one you want to walk in his steps. You want to do everything he does. You want to hang on every word. You want to be him. Well, that sounds familiar. Everything we're doing in, in quote-unquote Christianity is nothing but Judaism on steroids. This is what Judaism does. This is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is not something we're trying to come up with websites and booklets and, and, and Bible studies to teach everybody discipleship. That's all because we choose not to live together. If you're going to be a disciple, go live with the rabbi. When he gets up, you get up. Where he goes, you go. If he doesn't eat, you don't eat. It's a simple deal. I think, right. I think that's kind of neat. That, I mean, Paul doesn't really go over the history of Yeshua, except for the death and resurrection. That's like everybody should have already known everything that would have happened or the other apostolic scriptures are already floating around. I think they knew. We can back up, right? From the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of all his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit of good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father of all to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. Why? Because he hadn't met them. Epaphras told these guys all about Yeshua. And they said, yeah, we want this guy to be our right. I want to follow him. And now Paul's saying, are you kidding me? This is so cool. I, I just, spent, uh, just spent an evening with Paffy. We had a bottle of wine. It was great. And he tells me all about you guys. And you love my Rebbe. I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for you every day from now on. This, this, is, this is home stuff. He doesn't have to go through the details. Pappy did that already. It's like, okay, just let's make sure we're clear. Our Rebbe. Did you notice, by the way, I put it in the study. I don't know if you picked up on it. He, he makes it clear in his, uh, in his uh, reference there that I'm looking for it. I'm looking for it. Here it is. He includes himself in these statements um, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. First, that's from 2 Corinthians 3. But in first uh, in in 112, we see he uses us. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance. It's plural. Y'all. All of us. Right? He's, he's making it clear what this man did for you, he did for me. What he did for me, he did for He did this for everyone who wants to claim him as his rebel. It's a concept foreign to Gentiles. And I think 
that's part of the, the reason for the wedding. It's a cool reminder, too, that, you know, when you think about, okay, you want to attach yourself to Messiah Yeshua as your Rebbe, you know, then you, you, you kind of make this jump where you're like, all right, well, read read what he said, you know, and there's, there's a tendency maybe to think of it as like the red letter Bible, you know, the word of, of Messiah, the word of Christ, you read that all the time, you think like, oh, okay, that's the gospel, that's when, you know, Yeshua talked, but that's not what he uses whenever he teaches about himself, he always teaches from the Torah and the prophets. That's, that's what he. That's what it's always mentioned. So it's just a cool reminder to see, like, yeah. it's not you know you don't stop at the Gospels. You, you keep going all the way to use exactly what Yeshua used to reveal Himself or you, throughout His life. Or you don't even start there. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> I was going to say that. Yeah. Yes. If let's uh, let's share the good news about our Rebbe with someone throughout the month of January. Never use the apostolic scripture. <coughs> Paul never did. Mm -hmm. Peter never did. John never did. Yeshua never did. Why why are we so bound by that? Alright, let's move on guys. This is great. Excellent. I had hoped to do the entire book in one evening and remember that Joshua chastised me last time I tried to do that in Romans, so uh, I think we're good here. So we've, we've just talked a lot about Yeshua and who he is and what he did and so forth. And now Paul wants to make sure you put that into context with yourself. We can pick up in 21 and bring it down to the end of the chapter. Or actually, let me stop in, in 23 just so we got it. Micah. Thank you for coming, Mike. Would you read for us, Joshua? No, I'm only kidding. Mike, please go ahead. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. All right, let's stop there for just a moment. If you're doing evil deeds, what should you be doing? Righteous deeds. Don't you find it odd that he didn't, uh, he didn't tell you where to find the righteous deeds? Or how you would know that they were evil deeds? It, am I missing something? Or is there like a, is there a, a, a footnote that says you can find the list of evil deeds? Well, that was in the book to Laodicea. No! That's it? So we must have the righteous deeds. Where's the list of righteous deeds? I don't, I don't see that either. Hmm. Why not? This is not right. It's Torah. Yeah, it's the Torah, right? Yeah. I mean, it, we're in a Jewish context, this Jewish guy shows up and says, or I'm going to say Pappy wasn't Jewish, but was a Gentile that had been converted. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a Greek guy to me. All right. So he shows up and says, I used to, uh, we won't talk about how bad it was. But I know now that there's, there's a way to have a, a life in the world to come by joining myself to this Jewish Rebbe. So if you're not familiar with the scriptures, let me go through the Torah. 
this is how we know. You mentioned it before. This is how we know sin. This is how we know what's right to do. He's going to present us, I think you said holy and blameless. Didn't you read that? Holy mm-hmm. and blameless. Holy means, what's holy mean? Set apart according to my. Set apart. I like that. Is, okay. that, is that what your version yeah. is? What version is that? Is that a weird version? That's the weird version. Because every time you guys read, I think y'all's is the weird yeah, version. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you got the weird version. He's got the second weird version. <laughs> okay. Um, and I've got the, uh, what is this one here? The Messianic Jewish Shared Heritage Bible, which I think means it has a little page on the front for you to write your family tree. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, so holy set apart, blameless. Joshua, what's what's blameless? Describe that to me. Without sin. I thought you were going to say without blame, and I was going to come over there and smack. <laughs> without sin. I uh, I. I watched a movie called The Confession years ago. Excellent movie. Um, there's some profanity, so if you can't watch it with, with VidAngel, don't watch it. Um, in, in, this, uh, in this movie, the, the Jewish... He's not a protagonist. What, he's the Jewish lead, if you will, says that a righteous man is not without sin. But when he does sin, sin, he expiates. Expiates. He makes atonement. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you say he's without sin, he's blameless. He's without sin. Is that really true? No. So let me. So you lied. No. No. Okay. Just, I'm just checking. I'm trying to stay with you here. Were there anybody in the uh, apostolic scriptures that were described as blameless? Two, maybe three. These two. I take it you did not read the nativity story out of Luke chapter two this year. Josiah, tell me about Yochanan uh, Hamakviel's parents, John the Baptist's. Or John the Baptizer's, because he's probably a Christian. John the Baptizer's parents. Do you need to read it out? No, I want you to tell me from memory. Zachariah and Elisha. Elisha, yeah, thank you. Well, Zachariah was a very righteous man. Very righteous. I thought it was an absolute, like pregnant. You were either pregnant or you're not, you're either righteous or you're not. No? And so he's a very righteous man. And very faithful. And so is, uh, what, what was it? Elisheva was also very faithful. So they were both. It's odd that you should use those two terms. That's great. That's great. And the Bible says they were blameless. Both of them. Blameless. Were they without sin? So, if they did, what did they do? No, no, I think they did more than that. What did they do? Cleanse themselves of sin? I think they did more than that. What did they do? What? I think they did more than that. What did they do? Confessed. I think they did more than that. What did they do? 
Everything the Torah said to do when you They did what the Torah said to do when you break the Torah. That was so obvious. It's so obvious, but that's the thing, right? That's what blameless is. If you're blameless according to the Torah, then that means if you it's it's just what to do. If I borrow your wrench and I bust your wrench, I gotta give you back a wrench plus twenty points. Yes, sir. So what you're trying to say is that the definition of blameless is not being held accountable for? Or... Work on that. Help your brother. Well, Help really, your brother. I mean, I know you can't define term by term, but it sure does feel like you just want to say without blame. Because think about it, being without blame means you, you don't have something with which to blame. In other words, it's like, it's not so much that you never did anything, right. but in your present state, you don't have anything to blame. It's like... If you're wearing a shirt that's clean, how, it doesn't mean you, it never got dirty. Give me another term for this. Now. Give me another theological term for this. Sanctified? I don't have to worry about my relationship with Scott Martin. Why? Is it possible that I may have wronged him in the past? Is it possible that I messed with his kids a little too much to me? <laughs> He's coming away. <laughs> I have a clear conscience in my relationship with him. Why? Because if I've ever wronged him, I've made it right. Now, he has never wronged me, but I'm sure if he were to do so, he also would make it right. <laughs> this is what this is this is having a clear conscience before God. This is what it's all about. This is why they were blameless. It doesn't mean they were without sin. It means that if they ever broke the Torah inadvertently or deliberately, they did what the Torah said, what God said, to make it right. It's the perfect definition of that, that uh, Master Luke gives us. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So, so he defines what walking blameless means. Nobody could look at look at them and point at something and say, Doop! you didn't. Right. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So for those who are, are are living today in a in an experience of their their faith walk, and and they're filled with guilt or shame. It doesn't need to be that way. That's that's not what God intended. He intended that we would, if we sin, if we fall short, and wait, I think I, I read somewhere. I think wasn't it in all have sinned and fall short. So when someone says, how is your faith walk? Well, it's perfect. I'm blameless. That's not pride. That's a statement of fact. And it allows... Through God's grace, which yes does exist in Enoch, to be forgiven and to make right with Him and heal 
my relationship. Are you done reading yet? No. Well, let's go, bud. Stop wasting time. That is right. If indeed you continue in the way firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel and the true word, which is proclaimed in all the creation under heaven, and of which I Paul was made for and, and of which I Paul was made a minister. I, I want to make clear that the Greek there is diakonos, that's deacon or servant ministers really sort of a churchy type term. So I, I get the impression there that if uh, if you stay in the faith, then you can continue to be forgiven and without blame for whatever shortcomings you have, which hopefully over time less and less. But if you don't continue in the faith, what does that mean? Well, I think that's true, Michael, but, but in reality, the, the folks in the church would say that, you know, you, you, you've got to stay in the faith in order to be saved. You, you, you can't pull away. And I don't disagree with that, but I think the reason is here. Yes, sir? No, first hint. I mean. Okay, so if you don't believe in something, how can you both blame for believing, not believing it? All right, go, go further. Let's say you're in the faith. All right, I'm going to make that assumption. You're in the faith. And you steal a car. What did you do? Return the car Thank and you. buy another car. Suppose you're not in the faith now. Are you compelled to make right? Are you compelled to make atonement? Are you compelled to fix the problem? Depends. Do you have any desire to do so? No. So if you're not in the faith, how can there be forgiveness of sin? How can there be atonement? How can you be blameless? Right? So it's self-defeating. If you don't stay in the faith, you're host. Does that make sense? If you're in the faith, your desire, okay. your, 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 your walk should be getting better and better, right? You learn more and more about how to please God and how to connect with Him and how to draw near to Him, and you desire to do so. And you're in the company of other men that desire to do the same thing. You mess up. doesn't matter what you did or didn't do. You make it right. Because the Torah tells you how to make it right. No big deal. You turn the car. It's very similar to that between different religions, there are different moral codes. Yeah. But if you're not in one, if you fall out of this faith, then you have no ability to make it right. You, you can't atone for your sin. You can't clear your conscience. You can't make it right. So you see why being in the faith is so important at that point? Romans 2.12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by that law. There it is. Josiah. Cool shirt, by the way. Thank you. Come on. It's uh, the, um, about not being in a faith, in the faith, 
He gave us conscience so that when we know that we've done something wrong after we've gone out or have strayed away from the faith, that can be can be sort of compared to a magnet or something that pulls us back into the faith. Mm, sure. Realizing what we've done and then trying to amend for... And a, desiring to do so. Yes. You see, I agree with that. Guilty conscience. Yeah. You bet. Wondering, Don't talk with your mouth, hand in front of your mouth. I'm just wondering, um, did we know bread and wine when God made us? I mean, there was no such thing as sin, so why would he need to give us a knowledge of bread? Are we talking about one guy right now? Or are we talking about now? You said, when did we know... Right from wrong. Are we talking about him or okay. you? When God first made man, did yes. he make us with a conscience? Uh, there was no sin, so Do you think no he sin. added a conscience later? Well. Or do you think he had a conscience that was never seared? What do you think caused him to hide in the bushes? What do you think caused him to make the fig leaf little skirt deal that didn't do diddly? <laughs> Remember what he said? Who told you? You were naked. Nobody. I heard your voice. And I was afraid. Why would he be afraid? Unless there was some kind of a conscience there that made him recognize he'd broken fellowship because he'd violated God's word. I'm just wondering if the tree of knowledge of good and evil had something to do with that. I mean... Like giving when them a conscience. Man, there was no need for I like where you're going. And that's in Theology 207, and that's meeting on Thursday nights. Long glass, long glass. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we got that thing. All right, so we heard about Messiah. In him, the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. You're about us. It turns out from Joshua's perspective, we're all to And now, verse 24 to the end of the chapter, Micah, while you're at it, we find out about Paul. Okay. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. And filling up what is lacking in Mashiach's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, from God bestowed upon me your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is a mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. To whom God will to make known what is the riches and glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Mashiach in you, the hope of glory. Who proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may all can every man compete in the For this purpose, also our labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Thank you. Well done. So the Greek word for the day is thlipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Thlipsis. Ellipsis is three dots. Thlipsis is trial tribulation, oppression, and that is the affliction of which he is trying to make up, lacking in Messiah's 
afflictions. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, and I had all kinds of stuff to say about the mystery. I thought that was mm -hmm. in this lesson, wasn't it? Yeah. So we'll have to pick that up next week um, because you guys are so totally, awesomely uh, long-winded. But I love that. So uh, it's good to be back. I'm grateful for all your comments. I wish we had more time, but I'm committed to keep you on time here, especially after, if you have to drive up a mountain to get home to your wife. <laughs> Mike, I'm glad you came. It's good to have you. You're a little talkative. We'll work on that together. Scott, can you close us, please? Absolutely. Father, we're thankful for, uh, for all that you have done for us and for giving us the opportunity to respond to you. Uh, we pray, Father, that uh, you would bless our families, uh, bless us as men to be uh, uh, outstanding leaders. We pray, Father, that uh, uh, we would count ourselves worthy of the name that we proclaim, the name of Messiah Yeshua. We pray all these things in his name. Because of our relationship with you. Amen. Amen. Amen.